Hi, Kel. Hey, Tim. How are you? I'm pretty okay. together again to deliver i guess it's episode two of our podcast you called... guess it is oh um <laughs> <laughs> let's do that again episode two of our podcast called the ending goes forever that was a dramatic title announce should i do it again not so dramatic i'm gonna not cut any of this so just do whatever <laughs> go <laughs> the ending that goes forever Mm, not sure about that one. One more try. Our podcast called The Ending Goes Forever. There it is. It's in the bag. Welcome, <laughs> everyone. We got there together. Gosh. You've, you've hung with us this long. You're in it for the long haul. Episode two, we're, as we mentioned last episode, talking about Five Rooms, we started with the most recent album last time. If you haven't heard that, I guess it kind of doesn't matter if you go out of order, but perhaps go back and listen to it, episode one. Or don't. Um, don't, don't. You don't, we're not your boss. We're not yeah, the boss of you. That's true. You're the boss of yourself. You do what you damn you well please. You do what you do. You do you. Do you. We'll do us. Um, this is episode two. We're going right back to the very beginning of the bands, talking about our first album, Flower. This one came out in May of 92 on a Sydney label at the time called Survival. Actually, they were a joint Aussie um, Belgium label. They had an office in Belgium servicing mainland Europe, which was kind of cool at the time. We recorded it in Brisbane, um, mostly at a studio called Vibrafeel in the beautiful suburb of Inala. In my notes, I've got that it was recorded November 91 to Jan 92. That seems very narrow. Like looking back, it seems that, like we recorded it perhaps over a longer period. In hindsight, yes, it could have felt like that summer went forever, but now you mentioned that it was November to January, I'm remembering it being stinking hot, you know, being in the back ro- back streets of suburban Anala. And it wouldn't surprise me that it only was that small period of time. But, but, but I did feel like we went there a lot. So maybe we were going there like every weekend or something. I guess we were probably going there maybe if not every day, but super often. So I'm thinking that Tony was working. So maybe we just did the drums on the weekends and that maybe you and I did the rest of the stuff, um, you know, the rest of the time. I don't remember, um, but I know that back then, obviously, we were working quickly in the studio because, A, we were a young band. Uh, we didn't need to faff around. We were, from memory, super well rehearsed. Mm-hmm. Like, we really just walked in and played what we knew. We didn't experiment at all in the studio. Uh, also, the technology was such that there was no digital editing there was no going oh should we try that part here and drafting it over there's none of that like so were just, we going to tape in the beginning we were running to tape yeah. we were running we recorded a quarter inch tape yeah at vibrafil at vibrafil uh-huh. and after a while he graduated to um like this situation where there was two ADAP machines which mm-hmm. were queued up to each other and they were both eight tracks so we were recording to 16 track ADAP which is this very um, you know, first digital, first sort of. real practical digital format of recording, uh, and he was kind of all over it. And it was, it was obviously for some reason preferable to running to tape. I don't really know why. 
the guy's name was Mick Borkowski. He was the engineer and I guess de facto or default, I should say, producer of the record in a way yeah. because he really dictated the um, the style of the sound yeah. and it's a very, very particular sound. It like sure is. The studio really, any recording you hear from that studio these days, it's super obvious. Like the guitars are very thin and spiky. Mm. The drums are very, uh, again, trebly and presence and the whole mix is it's lively but it's mm-hmm. um perhaps you know especially if you were to compare it to say burnout your name which has got a bit more clout and a bit more mid-range mm-hmm. and bottom end and um speaking to mick after the fact he was sort of saying that the way he was running his audio signal there was something weird about it and something wrong which he didn't realize so much later and uh in subsequent recordings throughout the years that we did at vibrafield you can definitely hear a uh, a general sort of improvement in the tone and less of this fizzy sort of thing. It's like the guitars sound like they're metal sliding on a metal uh, plate, you know. Yeah, like, it's really bright. It's really, to me, it's like if you could imagine two giant plates of metal coming together and just like rubbing up yeah. against each other, that's what the guitars make me feel like. Yeah, and I mean, once you've listened to a couple of tracks on the album and you're into it, it's not something that bothers you or anything like that and you you know you sort of you know when you listen to a record you just get you, into you find it. the sound and yeah. the sound just feels normal so, so if you're listening that. to it against another record like if it was on like if it was being shuffled amongst other songs yeah, for sure yeah it would be like whoa this it would be very apparent the way i remember it is that you just joined the band mm-hmm. in that year we changed the name mm-hmm. because what happened was look i might get this all out of order but we travelled to the Gold Coast to a studio. Do you remember this? Yeah, I do. You know what I remember about that is oh. like you would buy a ticket at Roma Street train station that would take you to the casino and it was like $15 and for you'd also get a $5 chip right. <laughs> and a sandwich or like lunch or something crazy. So we would take that bus down there yeah. and exchange the $5 chip for money get the sandwich and go to the studio. Yeah, I think you're right. Does that ring a bell? It kind of does ring a bell. The <laughs> studio was, I can't remember what it was called, and no. it was halfway down the Gold Coast somewhere. Yeah. Who's Who was it? I don't know. Wow. <laughs> we were recording essentially demos with uh, an engineer called Murray Nash, who was an ex-Townsville guy who had recorded the second Madman single, Tower, End of This Day, with us. And we got together with him because he was a real live wire and he's a great guy to record with. And... Um, I think, from what I can dig up, the songs that we recorded were Seven Eleven, Carman. After that, I don't know. Like, it was perhaps A Silence. Remember that song, A Silence? Oh, my goodness. And perhaps Snail Trail, Maybe but I like can't remember. Maybe, like, Funny Fish or something once you've done an acoustic song? No. Anyway, I know that we did Carman. I know that we did Seven Eleven, And I know that we were really never very happy with the results. And knowing us, we probably sent cassettes of these recordings around to people in Sydney and Melbourne in an effort to try and, you know, further the progress of the band. Tony was very proactive with stuff like this back in the early days. He was super into pushing the band. He would call venues and promoters in Sydney and Melbourne. We would have toured a couple of times at least to Sydney Mm -hmm. and Melbourne before Flower was even recorded. When we recorded those four songs, after that, there was this brief period of time where Tony and I, I remember being in my van and we were like, should we fold the band up? Are we done mm. here? Are we getting anywhere? Is this going anywhere? We, we, we considered 
splitting up and mm. quitting because we were pushing up against this wall of not being able to get a good recording, not being able to make good demos. Mm. And it was really frustrating and the, the band wasn't, you know, moving ahead as we would have liked. And then someone suggested to us, hey, you should try this studio at Anala out in the freaking suburbs <laughs> run by this maniac called Mick Borkowski. <laughs> And we went, what the hell, we'll do it. And we went out there and we recorded, um, I believe it was Turnover. Uh-huh. Uh, it was probably the song Over, Pepper, and one more. I can't actually remember what it was. Yeah. But I remember we had four songs yeah. and we sent them to various labels on cassette and we sent one to the guys at Waterfront in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Remember the old shop down in the, yep. in the city there? Yep. And um, I think it was... Steve Stav. Steve Stav, yeah. Yep. He passed our cassette to Dan at Survival. Dan Hennessy. And we were sitting in our lounge room in Houston yep. Terrace in Milton one night and we got a phone call out of the blue. Hi, my name's Dan Hennessy. I run Survival Records out of Sydney. Um, I received your demo and he was offering us a publishing deal for the record. He said, we'll give you $1,500 as an advance. We're going to publish the records and put it out for you. And I was beside myself. Me and Tony, I was putting my hand over the receiver saying to Tony, they're going to give us 1500 bucks." And Tony's sitting there going, oh, my God. It's like a million dollars. Yeah, it was. It was like a million dollars and it was like a dream. And I think it was Steve from Waterfront who said to us, look, you're going to have to change the name. It's time for a name change. The Madman just sounded a little – it sounded 80s, to be honest. Yeah, it? right. So – we started thinking about a name change. We were fairly slow to really move on it and commit to it and finally find a new name. Mm-hmm. But when by the time we got to Vibrafeel and started recording the rest of the album, we changed the name or we were Scream Feeder and we were on track and we knew what we were doing. We knew we were recording our first album, Flower. I guess it was just a super exciting musical period because you know what happened in September of 91. What happened in September of 91? Nevermind came out. Oh. (laughs) And so it was... Oh, wow. It seems like thinking back to that period that before that moment, uh, everything was hovering and it was just about to boil and there was so much excitement in, in music and it was a really exciting time. And the moment that happened... Everything just erupted and for bands like us, it kind of helped us because it was totally the musical climate we were operating in. And um, I'll segue into this thing we were just talking about before, me and you in the kitchen, that really when I listen to Flower, it's very, very obvious to me that it's an album where all my songs are trying to emulate one band or another. You know, yeah. so if you name any song, like Pepper is really trying to be a Nirvana song. Yeah. Turnover is really trying to be a Swerve Driver song. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I don't hear that. I mean, we have to need to listen to it to sort of kind of find Other melodies that. and the way it moves for sure. Um, well, don't go too far into that because we should do a song by song. We should do a song, song by, by song. song. You're right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, to complete setting the scene then, we were living together in a share house in Milton in Brisbane, Hughesler Terrace. With our girlfriend, Tony and my girlfriends, and you were there too, Kel. Yep. And, uh, yeah, as we said, it was busy time. Tony was busy booking the band heaps. Uh, I was running a lot of songs. Uh, you were writing for a couple of magazines at the time. Yep. In that front office in the house. 
Yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on for me at that time. So I just moved out of the house that I was living in with my friends. So I moved in with you guys and um, I just finished uni. So I literally just graduated and my parents had just broken up and I was in this very weird place in my life where I was feeling a bit untethered and a bit vulnerable and weird. And I just broken up with a guy I'd been in a relationship with for two years. So right. I was like 20, I was 20 mm. and I was lost as hell. And I was just like, I just ended up with you and Tony in yeah. a van for like months driving around the country, just like, yeah, dealing with some weird stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, Tony was always that much younger. He was probably only 18 at the time. I was a bit older, 22, 23 already probably. But um, especially, I guess, with Tony, you know, thinking about how young he was and yeah. how driven and how focused he was. Mm. It was actually, we're super lucky that he worked so hard yeah. to propel us forward at such a rate. And, you know, Tony and I always had this thing in our minds, like we wanted to work like the – like the American indie rock bands, say, on SST in the 80s mm. who used to tour relentlessly and release album after album, year after year. Mm. That was our sort of model. I don't know if we voiced that to each other, but that was definitely what we were aspiring to do. And as far as Brisbane at the time, uh, you know, from memory, it was a really fertile time. There was tons of young bands. There was lots of venues to play at. There was a very healthy punk scene, very healthy alternative scene. And it felt like you could make a phone call and get a gig extremely easily. We were all in the underground, but the underground was just about to explode and become the mainstream. Yeah, that's right. And so we just happened to be on the right side of the the curve. That's right. You know, so if we were in like a metal band, it would have been a different story if we were, you know, not doing the type of music we were. Yeah. Uh, So what else was happening in that time? Well, I guess Livid Festival was at its, I guess you could sort of arguably say it's prime. Um, There was also, you know, great venues like the Funkyard. There was, well, the Funkyard was also a nightclub, which is super great. I remember um, it was, you know, everyone in our scene would go to the Funkyard on a Friday and a Saturday and just have a great time. We had Rock Against Works as well. So that was a thing that was Friday afternoon from midday. Bands would play. You know, we'd just have like... The time of our lives. I was on the dole and I don't know how I managed to like drink every night of the week and go see well, bands constantly. Living was cheap. Like I was on the mm-hmm. dole too and you could actually afford to pay rent, drink, be in a band, go on tour. Buy and cigarettes. Buy maybe cigarettes. like eat food. Yeah. <laughs> food came it's amazing. last. It's amazing to think. Yeah, and you had a car. Like, I didn't have a car, so I didn't have to worry about buying petrol, but petrol was super cheap. I remember borrowing my friend's little Honda Civic and I put $5 in it to, like, get into the city and I was like, God, imagine. I guess it's easy to look back and, you know, see the highlights and look at it through rose-coloured glasses. Do you think there was anything you know, while we're on the subject about the time that was less than great and it was a bit shit or it was hard or it was horrible or anything Well, coming like that. out of the, like, the late 80s in Brisbane's history was, or Queensland's history is a shady time because of the whole um, corruption of the Bajolke-Peterson government and, like, the police force and it was a really crazy time. I've been in so many drug... Um, Raids. Raids. Yeah. I remember um, 
I believe this must have been 1990. We went to the Livid Festival and I remember watching Mudhoney play and it was the first time I'd seen any of these Seattle bands and it was sort of really a revelation. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Anyway, what had happened was the night before, two of my housemates had taken acid and had ended up roaming around the streets of Rosalie half naked and screaming at 4am and been promptly bundled into a police paddy wagon and taken I went with them actually to look after them to the hospital and they were they were manhandled into the RBH it was called at the time right across the road from where this livid was happening yeah and yeah that just looking back on that now seems borderline horrific but it was just kind of normal stuff that happened in that era of Brisbane and it was a little druggy and it was uh, a little crazy yeah. and yeah. So it was a really interesting time in Brisbane. It was very much like a propelling stage. You know, it was like the – it wasn't the calm before the storm. It was like the storm before the eruption. The yeah, know, exactly. Like- yeah, it was. Um, let's, I guess, talk about the music. Okay. Let's, should we do our song by song thing? Yeah, so the first song is Tower. Tower is the song that um, the Madman had recorded as a single, our second single, while we were still living in Townsville. We recorded it in the bedroom of a guy called Murray Nash, a local sound engineer, and it was during a brief period where the Madman had a fourth member, a guy called Bruce Gardner, a brizzy guy who was living in Townsville, who liked our band. He saw us live and just turned up basically and said, I'm joining your band uh, the next day. And uh, anyway, so yeah, we recorded Tower and it was this fairly scrappy version, but it had a a real vibe to it. And when we went to record Flower, we felt that it was a song we should bring with us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Tower was a song I wrote in my flat in, I think it was called Mary Street in Townsville. I remember sitting in my bedroom writing it on my 12-string guitar about some failed... Uh, rocket takeoff out of Cape Canaveral and just yeah I just threw it together and it's uh, it's, you know what the funny thing about it is especially playing it now we've been playing it live this year actually haven't Mm -hmm. we Uh, it's a weird song because the rhythm of the bass and drums is one thing and the guitar's (laughs) acting totally against it the guitar's doing this totally different thing so like yeah the bass and drums and the guitar's going it's totally not the same rhythm and it's so weird it's hilarious because it's like Lust for Life that I'm playing it's kind of Lust for Life that gets buried under some non-Lust for Life guitars that totally ruin the Lust for Life factor and no, it, it actually covers up the fact that it's Lost for Life. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> Listen to it now, I'm like, how does that even work? It's so strange, isn't it? This is a really weird song for you, I think, because there's the end part that goes on and on and on. And um, it's kind of like, Tim, what are you doing? <laughs> Normally you would have ended this part. And, but yeah. it's really interesting. Listening to Flower for the first time in a really long time, I was really sort of taken aback by the sophisticated nature of the songwriting. I was thinking that I was going to be hearing like really simple songs like Tower. Uh And it's a really simple song. Even though there's those, you know, you've got your really great like alternating, you know, your chorus will be different each time with a different chord thrown in there or whatever. Yeah. But um, so this is probably the most simple song 
on the record, I reckon. Yeah, I guess in one way it is the kind of song that because it's got a very droney, repetitive feel, it can almost get away with that and it almost yeah. needs that. Like I remember at practice really recently we we were like, oh, God, it's so long. Why don't we cut out four lines towards the end, remember? Yeah. And we tried it and, sure, the song ended sooner, but it was like, <laughs> no, it doesn't work. And it also, needs it. Well, lyrically it needed it. You're yeah. painting a picture and I remember Phil saying, oh, Tim really needs to say these things because they this is not your type of arrangement like you must really need to say these last couple of lines and you and I always have a really funny moment in the song there's a point about the two-thirds mark where I do this super long note and then I step back and go yep and I know that you're looking at me laughing and I know that I can freaking move my eyes like a quarter of a millimeter and I see it and I know what you're doing and I go yep and let's also touch on the fact that this is the song that we actually met through. Yes. Uh, I was film student and I needed to make a video and I got in contact with the, with the Mad Men to make a video for Tower. And then eventually, you know, they ended up rehearsing in my house and then I joined the band, blah, blah, blah. I think everybody in the world knows that story. What if they don't? Let's just... Let's just... Huh. Kelly wrote me a letter in the mail and said, hey, I love your song Tower. I'd like to make a video clip for you. I wrote back and said, sure, that sounds great. And by mm-hmm. the way, I've heard through the grapevine, you've got a practice room in your house. And yeah. We organised to meet and we ended up rehearsing in your lounge room. Yeah. And you ended up obviously hearing the Mammon songs a trillion times. Yeah. Because we practised all the time. And then when we parted ways with our old bass player, Cam, you more or less just stepped in and filled the gap. And that was yeah. how it all started, right? Yeah. But I had like schemed with my housemate, Rachel, at the time, like, how can I get Cam out of the band? So I yeah, really right. wanted to be in this band because I saw I was following you. I was seeing all the things, like all the gigs you were playing and you put out two singles and it was like, and an EP on vinyl. And I was like, whoa, how are they doing this? I need to know. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was able to just contact you through the PO box 565 Paddington 4064 and send you the letter and I didn't even have a telephone, so I had to, like, make a time to call you from my phone box down on Ipswich Road. And then you'd just come around to my house and practice in the lounge room. And I was in another – so I was in crud by then. And it was such an idyllic time, you know, it was angsty. It was, like, early 20s. There was a Seven Eleven down the road. I used to go withdraw money from the hospital, the PA hospital <laughs> down the street. I used to, like – we used to crawl out my window and sit on the patio – the um, – garage like you know tripping on mushrooms (laughs) it was a really great time yeah 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 um track two on the album is over (laughs) do you like that little segue so hey (laughs) do you like that little segue yeah that's a great segue it's like oh we're over listening to you talk about your life kelly Over was a song written by Tony along with Brett Fitzsimmons who was in Midget at the time. They kind of really put the bulk of the song together. I think Tony and I, or maybe me just on my own, I can't remember, did this sort of second half, the big instrumental half. Mm -hmm. But um, right from the word go, I remember it was a super favourite of people's when we played live and things like that. Yeah. And it was a song that was in the set for a long time and it was great fun to play. You know, it was really dynamic and loud and stuff. And... uh, because Tony and Brett wrote the first half, it was this kind of song I probably wouldn't have written, you know, really quite mm. simple chord-wise and quite, you know, 
traditional almost and quite pretty in a way. You rip your throat out singing this song. Yeah, I really was good at doing that back then. Yeah, you were. And it's like you sing in a different register then too. Yeah, it was fairly high. And well, I wasn't no, you, afraid of... You sound lower though. Like right. you're, your voice has a, um, a lower... Hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, uh, so let's talk about this now. Let's talk okay. about... By the time we got to about 1996, we decided after listening back to Flower that my vocal sound had really changed and it, it had lost that... Because, yeah, it had like this low, dirgy sort of thing about it, which I didn't like. It was quite thick. Yeah, it was thick and low. Which is really low. different now. And by the so time, different. yeah, sort of 96 around that kitten league's time, my voice had livened up a little and lost that heavy, dragging, kind of weird tone. And we went back to the studio and we re-sang almost all the album, like all the, all the tracks we'd recorded at Vibrafield, and we released the album again through Shock. So it was like a reissue, but it was actually re-sung and remixed. And sure, the remixing itself isn't super different. There are little elements like stick counts that are put in that weren't there before, but the overall sound isn't heaps different. One thing that sticks out is I was very big on uh, pushing the kick drum forward in a lot of oh. songs to the point where it's a little extreme, actually. I did notice... Carman, I think, has some sounds attached to the front yeah, of it. Yeah, it does. But that's not in the original. No, it's not. Back in those days, I knew nothing about mixing and how it actually really had to work and how sounds have to help each other. Or So it was just a matter of turn the kick drum up and make it much louder. And Mick would turn around and go, oh, mate, it's pretty loud. Uh, i go, knock it up a notch. You know, yeah, I was so kind of just being a bit stupid about it. When you were pushing something up, it's at the expense of something else. Well, there's that, but it also just sticks out of the mix really, really very yeah. Hard, apparently. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I listen to that version, the version that, you know, you're going to hear most probably on the internet and stuff, it's that 1996 version where, you know, I'm happy with my vocals. Mm-hmm. Like, if I listen to the old one, I'm like, oh, my vocals just sounded shit back then. I, I just couldn't really sing well. It was just the sound of someone trying too hard to do something they weren't extremely good at in the first place. What song do you think that's being emulated in that? Like, Tony and, and Brett, what were they trying to do then? With that one, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'd say Buffalo Tom. Yeah, I mean... You're probably right, Buffalo Tom, something like that, because that was a that was something that was creeping in for yeah. sure around there. Okay, yeah. interesting. Uh, let's move it on. What's okay. next? So the next song is Pepper. Pepper. The Nirvana cover, Pepper. <laughs> it really is like that, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. It's very obviously a, a big, brash uh, Nirvana ripoff. Yeah. And really, as a song, it kind of hangs together for me. Like, I don't feel it's an incredibly well put together song. It's certainly energetic and it yells a lot and it's loud. It rounds around the fretboard quite a bit, <laughs> not in a very uh, uh, in clever way, just in a bit of more of a kooky crazy weird way it's got like a key change at the beginning or something well every kind of like verse or whatever part jumps up like by three frets for some reason i've got no idea why i think i was just doing a bit of a maths experiment more yeah or less. i think it's great like, you like it yeah I, it was so much fun to play 
And listening back to it, I was just going, wow, I really like your vocal melody. It's really mellow. It's like... Well, it starts mellow, yeah. You're just doing like very minor, minor-y? I guess it's like a lot of those early stage Nirvana songs where it was um, very, yeah, subtly put forward. Uh, The other thing about this song, I actually literally just this second realised it's the first song ever we recorded with the now popular screen feeder A-tuning, which is E-A-D-A-A-E on the guitar. And it's actually the earliest song we've got in that tuning. There's only two on Flower. There's heaps on Burn Out Your Name um, and subsequent albums. Uh, But yeah, that's the first example. And it's got that real sound where you kind of, you think, hang on, which chord is he playing? Mm. It almost sounds like two chords at once. I use that tuning as well for quite a few um, Majestic Horses songs and um, yeah, it's beautiful tuning. It opens Burn Out Your Name, it opens Rocks on the Soul, it opens Five Rooms. Oh wow, there you go. Yeah. Cool, nice bit of triv. Yeah, a lot of triv. Okay, so the next one is 7-Eleven. So this is quite an old one. Uh, yeah. We definitely wrote it uh, when we were back in the Mad Men, probably early to mid-91. Uh, I remember it was another fairly popular song at gigs and stuff, and there's one line in it about, um, oh, I can't remember, driving around in the van, stopping in at 7-Eleven, and I remember specifically it was about me and John from Bud yeah. driving around in my old van, yeah. and just he'd be going, let's go to 7-Eleven tomorrow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, we go in there and spend like $1 or something like that. <laughs> Come out, feel like lords. <laughs> I love like the beginning, you know, it's like, I hear my name being called. And then the song starts and it's yeah. like that fucking guitar sound. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I mean, you've written a whole song about a convenience store. Yeah, I really milked it. You and like really like spelled out all of the, yes. um, the things, the products you can buy, the girl behind the <laughs> counter, the things you can do with the products when you've bought right. them. Yeah. Um, things that you can take them home for, like having a beer later. Yeah. It's a great song. <laughs> it's funny. You know, the guitar riff obviously isn't my standard recycled do kind of sound. It perhaps echoes more to something like a bit Mud Honey or mm-hmm. something maybe a little bit early stage Seattle or something or even Swerve Driver. Yeah, it's really, it's kind of like um, that sort of Seattle take on rock and roll. I feel it's more likely to be Swerve Driver, I think, but I could be wrong. Anyway, yeah, so for the Madman sound, it was a very flimsy sound. And I remember whatever pedal I had, the person who sort of taught me how to use it said, don't turn the volume up any higher than how the volume is when you play without it. And that, that was this weird golden yeah. rule I had in my head. Yeah. And the distortion, just have it on a little bit. And I remember, you know, recording the first few Madman singles like that, with this very mild sort of distortion. And then I was like, hang on, this <laughs> thing goes a little bit harder, you know. <laughs> hang on. Yeah, hang on. It's so funny when you're told how to do things when no. you're learning and you're like, you never forget them and you're like, but that's so restrictive. Yeah. <laughs> What's the next song? End of this day. Ah, end of this day is um, as old as Tower. It's the next Madman song. 
Uh, it was on the other side of the tower single, and it's another one we re-recorded for Flower because uh, it was a big song in the set. It's so funny because, like, I was working in a record shop in Townsville called Wavelength, and the dude in there uh, introduced me to like some of the early Sonic Youth records and stuff like that. And that opening little riff, it's this, it's like a tiny, tiny bit discordant for a second, and I was like, <laughs> "That's full Sonic Youth." <laughs> <laughs> I'm so edgy. Yeah, totally. yeah. And um yeah, it's a real simple song, like real easy one. Like it's very singy, singy alongy, you know. And uh I think it's yeah, it's fairly fun to play. You remember playing it? Yeah, it's it's fun to play. Um I don't think I'm playing on that record though. Isn't this a cam recording? No, no, this is re recorded at Vibrafield. You're on it. Oh, okay. Can we just listen to it for sure? Sure, let's listen. Meat and potatoes drumming style, like you know, Dave Grohl. Yeah, it's like, very Grohl influenced. Yeah, very powerful, big and um, bulky. Just listening to the the vocals are so insanely <sighs> like screamy and yeah. yelling. I mean, that's the style of the times. Yeah, I'm, I kind of wish I could get back to that. I wish you could too. I'm gonna give it a red hot go. <laughs> okay, I've been doing it. With, um, my new stuff that I'm doing is lots of yelling right. and holy crap, it's cathartic. I wanted to be the best bass player in the world. I wanted to like kick everyone's ass and. I made the most complicated bass lines to play and to remember. And I really made my job very hard. Did you achieve your goal? No. Oh. <laughs> I mean... I was hoping you'd say yes. Oh, yes. No, I, I don't know. Like, I did have to simplify a lot of my... I mean, so, you know, we would sit down and you'd play me a song and I'd try and sit there and work a bass line out. And, you know, I couldn't just play back then. I, it was impossible for me to play, like, root notes almost. Like, I was all over the place. I feel that so many years went by uh, where we'd sit down and learn songs together, learn the music for the songs, and you would never even ask me what the root notes were. Yeah. You'd play something that went with it for a time, then wandered off and went against it and came back to it. And it really feels like, say, for the last two albums... That's been the only times, really, when you sit down and go, okay, what chords are in the chorus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bummer. No, it's fine. It's good. It's just different playing style. Also, it's good. Yeah, I mean, I was a really frustrated bass player. I was, you know, I was a frustrated guitarist playing the bass, but I wanted to just be a really great bass player. I wanted to play really melodic, interesting bass lines. Well, when I listen back to your um, bass lines from at least the first three albums, they stand out as being fairly, you know, unique in their in their approach, and they've they've got plenty of little hooks in them, and you, mm. you look out for and you hum along to and stuff. So you you know, I think you did what you set out to do. Yeah, I definitely wanted to be different from everybody. 
like because everybody like in the this time of the nineties, every second band had a girl bass player. That's true. And a lot of the time, you know, no shade on anyone in this situation, but a lot of the time, the girl bass player in the band was the guitarist girlfriend or right. something. And and I I just wanted to. Like I wasn't that person yeah. and I want, you know, like I needed to prove that, that I was really good at it and I wasn't just there as the token girl because I'd actually been told by a manager of another band that I was the token girl. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I know that you didn't and nobody else around us didn't feel that way, um, but there was a bigger story sure. out there, you know, so... I felt like I had stuff to prove and mm. it was all my own stuff. It wasn't like I was being asked to prove it. <laughs> but, yeah, interesting. End of This Day was another song, I think that's three in a row, that we made a video for that's gone forever. We made a video in our actual practice room. in the t- And, like, I did literally have Token Girl written on my arms. That's right. That was this yeah, song. Yeah, so I show them at the end and we're just playing in our practice room that we shared with Crud. Yeah. I can remember it really well. I can remember it too. I really wish I had these clips. I really have no idea what happened to them. Let's move on. What have we got? Um, Carmen. Carmen. Wow. This is an interesting song. This is one that I wrote when I just first moved to Brisbane in like late 89, early 90. Tony and I were living in a house on Main Street in Kangaroo Point. I remember writing in that house. We were really big on Descendants and stuff like that around, which you can probably hear in the song, you know, like almost a little bit of Celebrate Rifles in there as mm-hmm. well. It's not super Descendancy, but it's got a bit in there for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. That's what would you say? I don't know, actually. I'd say it's really sort of um, choppy. I mean, possibly, this is going to sound strange, but even maybe a tiny bit of the Rollins Band approach kind of thing. We played it recently, I think, within the last maybe year, a live gig, and it was kind of hard because it's so fast and oh, it sings so high, but it was kind of cool. I do the scream at the end, and um, I, when we used to play it a lot, like back in the day when we were touring a lot, pretty sure that I nearly passed out a few times doing that right. scream. <laughs> but that was always fun. I mean, it's pretty fun to play for me. Like the guitar more or less just stays in one position the whole time, apart from the middle where it runs up and down the neck. But yeah. It's uh, fairly easy to play and sing at the same time. At least. Yeah. Celebrate Rifles, that's interesting. Um, we used to play a lot with them. Yeah, Tony and I went through a really big rifles phase. Mm. What's next? Bugging. Bugging. Okay, well, this is a very obvious emulation song. Do you know what it is? Uh, Teenage Fan Club? No. Um, well, the title even has a clue. Oh, Dinosaur Junior. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's got that real sort of mid-paced, um, melodic, yeah. four-chord thing. It's total dinosaur attempt, at least. That's all I can say. I didn't even hit the mark. but Yeah, I don't think you hit the mark because there's no meandering lead break going on. There is some meandering bad lead in it, though, <laughs> you know. I'm only to listen to it again.
It's a cute song. Yeah. What's it about? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> What's bugging mean? Um, as in bugging, as in annoying someone. Is that what it means? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All these little things keep bugging all the time. Yeah, right. And it's just about nothing. It's just like I hear some words as 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 something to present the melody with, you know. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about this song? Not it's really. S- like it's 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 not the greatest song on the record. It's not the worst. It's just it's there doing its thing. It's a pretty popular song though. We used to play it a lot. We did used to play it a lot. Like yeah. all the time. I mean, it's a fun song to play as yeah. well. It kind of moves along pretty well. Turn Over is the next song. Turn Over. Okay, so this is slightly older again, written probably early 90, maybe late 89. I was driving around. We'd moved to Brisbane and I drove with my then-girlfriend up to like Emerald, out bush somewhere there and back up to Townsville and we had a fight in Townsville and she stayed and I drove, drove the van home and on my trip home I blew a head gasket outside of uh, Rockhampton before north of Rockhampton I had to spend like three days in my van while it was getting fixed I had no money I was living like on just like apples and stuff <laughs> I think it was when I was up in Townsville at that leg of the trip that I put this song together and yeah big swerve driver influence I love it. Yeah, it's really cool. And um, I really like the lyrics of this song too. And it's like, if you don't like me today, then you will hate me tomorrow. (laughs) That is a good line. (laughs) Um, Do you find listening back to these songs that um, you feel in any way they're less yours and they're more me and Tony's or not? Oh, 100%. Right. Yeah, I feel disconnected completely from this record, except for that I played on it Yeah. and I was in it. Yeah. But like I... I have the like the connection to the bass line, so I can feel the music like live. Yeah. But I don't feel like I was part of the making of them, the the writing of them. Perhaps at the time you didn't even realise that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I felt like because when I did join the band, I was under the impression potentially I was temporary. Because there was that hanging over my head for You're a little right. bit. We did for a short time talk about. The idea of this other guy joining. Yeah. 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 And so I knew that. And okay. so I guess I I don't know when it was apparent that I was staying. It would have been by the time we did this record, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Like I said, when I, when I listen to them, I can just feel them live. Yeah. I just am completely taken back to this time well, on I guess stage. It's good that you invested a lot in writing great bass lines for the record because otherwise, you know, if you just said to me, what will I play on these songs? Yeah. And I'd given you bass lines like you mentioned in Tower and End of This Day. Yeah. Uh, it would have been way more so. I don't know. I think it's an important part of the, the song. Oh, but great. it's not part of the songwriting process. Mm. It was added, not added in later, but... Oh, gosh, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. I'm, and I feel it when I listen back to almost all our albums, like... I guess at the time when we record, I'm always listening to the song and I'm always hoping that the song hits the mark as a, as a whole. 
but listening back I'm, my ears are more broad and I kind of will hone in on the bass line or actually listen to especially what the drums are doing and often it feels like I'm listening to the drums for the first time mm. and I feel because I kind of understand drumming a lot more now and I'm like wow the drums are doing something super cool you know and or not but whatever and it's really really interesting especially listening back to yeah older stuff and listening to what you're doing and Tony's doing and Dean's doing and that being a much bigger part of what I'm hearing and I can let my stuff sit almost on the bottom of the pile because I know it so well mm-hmm. and I can listen to all the other stuff it's, it's nice actually One of the things about playing with Tony and I um, I don't think I necessarily played along with him I was playing on my own world and probably more with the guitar I actually really like that Yeah um, Dean's often said the same thing. He'll play along to me more than you. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I definitely remember seeing bands like, say, Who Do Gurus, who you listen to the bass and the drums and they're locked on. They're it's locked like in, the yeah. kick and the bass are locked 100% away. And in a way, it's super cool. And in a way, it's kind of not. In a way, it's kind of a bit boring and predictable. And honestly, I don't need that. I need the bass to be doing cool stuff and the drums to be doing cool stuff and I totally don't need that lock-on traditional approach. I mean, that creates a certain thing. It creates rhythm. It creates like a very heavy, like, foundation. Um, So it's one whole different type of music almost. Yeah, I agree. And talking about the whole heavy thing, it's interesting because, like, say on Burn Out Your Name, which, you know, is definitely the album where the guitars are probably their most solid and bludgeoning kind of heavy-ish, um, even that album, like you and Tony were still doing your own thing largely and there was no real traditional rhythmic lock-on or anything like mm-hmm. that. But for me, like even in that era of music being, wanting to be heavy and the whole Seattle thing and stuff, it's largely hot air, I believe. Because like, you know, you listen to bands like Soundgarden, Nirvana, sure, they've got a decent bottom end going on. But it's not like, it's not like the bottom end's everything, like in a lot of, say, modern metal or something like that. And also for me, like heavy schmevy, I don't need it. I need, it's almost like I need the lighter end of the tonal spectrum. Like I need treble, I need mids, I need excitement. I don't care about bottom end mm. so much in general. Yeah. You know? That's so funny because I'm super into like having the heaviest bass ever. Really? Yeah. Still? St- totally. Wow. I just want to be very round, you know, I want to be very <laughs> ballsy. Wow. See nothing in your nothing in your instrument choice, pedal choice, playing style suggests you're going for heavy. Honestly, really, yeah. Well, really. I just feel like I'm the heaviest bass player in the world sometimes. Well, I'm happy for you that you can feel that way. I'm oh, sorry <laughs> that I'm not living up to my own expectations of being the heaviest bass <laughs> but player I like, in the world. I like your bass tone because for me, it's really quite mid rangey and exciting. Yeah, no, I have found that mid-range is where it's at because I probably can't hear any bass anymore anyway. I mean, if you look <laughs> at a player like Lou Barlow, he's all about the mid-range oh, and the, totally. exci- the exciting kind of zone there. Yeah, so I think I'm I'm, I'm actually, because I have to be in the mid-zone to like um, cut through. Yeah. But I just feel like that's like super heavy, super bassy, bottom <laughs> heavy. It's the new mid-range. <laughs> <laughs> no, the other way around. <laughs> mid-range is the new super heavy that's black. That's nice. <laughs> That's great. Good God. Good on you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very happy to be this person today.
Walking through the village. Walking through the village is another Madman mm. B-side, actually, from the third Madman single. The A-side being the absolutely appallingly awful song Cool Kind of Kid. <laughs> Remember that That was one? your first single, wasn't it? No, it was the third. Oh, wait, was it? Yeah. It's an absolute shotgun. It's the worst song ever in the whole world. Why? What? It sucks. It's like a um, child's attempt at bettering mud honey. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what it is. <laughs> I can remember this. Like, how does it go? Can you just... I'm not even going to... Oh, no. boy. No. Is this the song that you're most unhappy with in your life? It's probably one of them. It's probably definitely in the top five of songs that I, of my own that I... Want to disown and send to live in an orphanage. <laughs> is it a double A-side single? Yes. Okay, well that's... Oh, no, it's not. It's no, the, so Walking Through is... the Village was an actual B-side. Oh. Yeah. But Walking Through the Village, despite it being another huge dinosaur emulation, I love... It's a, it's a cool little song, Like, and I, I really like the way the chords work, and I like the way it's short, and it has a, a nice sort of adventurous back half, and the, the words are pretty cool, and the melody's pretty cool. singing this song Tim. <laughs> <laughs> there's that old vocal sound it's interesting because it's like the opposite of your balls dropping <laughs> <laughs> where do you sing from now then I don't even know are you um, singing from your you're not singing from your throat I think back then I was only singing from my throat and I didn't even I wasn't even aware enough of what my actual voice sounded like to tailor it to sound how I wanted because I was probably drowning myself out in guitar volume the whole time. I could probably hear very little. I guess you're trying to pull, push from your throat to like get that Yes. Yeah. But like now like we know that you got to sing from your diaphragm. Well now I just tend to open it up a bit more and sort of hopefully get everything flowing a bit more properly, Yeah. Know, like so this this is a cool song. This has got like it's really driving. It's got really good lyrics as well. What's it about? Uh, I think progress. it's about progress. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, here we are and shit's changing, and it's the, the old village is now a big city or something like that. We didn't use much reverb back then. Um, I remember when you were recording your vocals, you're always like, just dry. I don't want anything on there. Now it's like, let it up. Like, just whatever you got. <laughs> just like fucking lay your shit all over it. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but um, always just going, dry, nothing. Don't yeah, put anything on my vocal. Right. Typical breakup song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, the why did we always, what was going on in the 90s, especially the early 90s, when everyone had to put an acoustic song on an album? For me, it comes from Zen Arcade. Yeah, right. You know, that's the root of it all. And yeah. it wasn't that every band had it. Like, there were certain bands who would never go there, but... I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice change, and it's yeah. a nice rest for your ears, and it's a nice sound, and uh, shows you versatile, and that yes. what your songs are really like. Shows you sensitive. Too. 
But you're sensitive yeah. and you can get <laughs> checks. <laughs> um, I think this is a Lemonheads song. Oh, wow. What okay, do you that think it is? That hadn't really occurred to me. I thought it was just a Who's Could Do song. Like, I'm trying to be Bob Mould on Candy Up Grey, say. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, I can kind of hear, like, Evan Dando. Right. Maybe. This was written really early, like, 88, 89 in Townsville. Yeah. And is it about a specific breakup or no, it's just a... it's just a generic, yeah. It's a generic breakup. So that's the penultimate song on our oh, very first now album. Now it's going to get fun. Tell us about the ultimate Cut. song. Cut. Cut. So Cut is the, definitely the, the newest song on the record. It was the last song we would have written to go on the album. Um, another song in the A tuning and another song featuring incredibly Dave Grohl-like bombastic drumming from Tony, a big, slow, dirgy rhythm and an opening sequence that still blows your mind to this day, right? Let's hear it. <laughs> I know that it does. It does. Let's go there. What a trip. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually one where I think listening back to it, the singing's borderline passable now. Like I can listen to it without cringing. Okay. That's only taken 32 years. The style of the music, you know, when we're listening to it just now, is super swerve drivery crossed with, I guess, still a little bit of Nirvana, right? Yeah, but maybe even like verging into like, I don't know. Fudge tunnel, even perhaps you know, yeah. like getting into heavier, yeah. sludgy yeah. territory. I got to say that, like, <laughs> firstly, a funny story that, like, whenever we were putting together a set list for a gig, and it was like, what should we play? Like, after you'd written everything you could think of, and you'd be like, what should we play? And we never played this song, yeah. did we? No. I'd always say it's like cut. <laughs> even now, I still do it. I forgot how it even sounds until yeah. then. Um, it's such a Big epic song, and the chords, like the first chords, what are they? What it just are they? sounds amazing. Uh, it's just that tuning and just the the way it's you know slammed really heavy. Yeah, and I just think that probably people hearing this back at then were just like, "Whoa, what is this?" You know, I mean, I feel like that listening right. to it now. Right. You know, people weren't writing songs like that. In Australia, I don't think. It's so funny because, like, the way we, um, you know, a lot of these songs, as I said, is super sort of trying to emulate other bands. The way we heard these other bands was so different from how we ended up filtering it. And, like, mm. you know, we'd listen to a band like Swear Driver or whoever it may have been, and we just assumed that they were mega heavy, their guitar sounds were incredibly dirty and all this stuff. You listen to the early Swear Driver now, and it's not the case at all. They're, they're like a great pop rock band, and their sounds are actually reasonably clean and mm -hmm. well picked and I thought everything was so heavy yeah that's right and that there was just distortion on the bass mm -hmm. everywhere and and like it's just not no you're right <laughs> 
and it's sort of like, oh, I'm even listening. So, you know, being a kid, listening to something like Iron Maiden, yeah. and going, oh my God, this is the heaviest thing yes. ever. Listening to them now, it sounds like they're playing in a fucking can of soup. Yeah. Like a little tiny yeah, yeah, can. Yeah. They don't have any depth. It's all high. I guess it's just all about context and perception, yeah. isn't it? You know, it like, is. It's, it is context and perception. Yeah. Um, but this song is great. Wow. You really think so? Yeah, I do. Wow, okay. I even like the change. It was so funny. We were listening to it going, that's so swerve driver. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but, you know, I can guarantee you that most other people wouldn't. Or maybe they would. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, the other thing that is apparent to me that I haven't even really put into words yet is that, like, listening back to it all, you know, I've still got a very slippery grasp on really how chords work and how music actually works and what how chords play against each other and support each other and, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, there's even songs where, like, I've got a very, very shaky grasp on the whole minor major thing, even which is mm-hmm. so fundamental to playing guitar. It's like a, a lesson number one thing, you know. I kind of love that, though. It certainly gives um, a unique flavour. I guess it's not a great flavour as soon as you <laughs> understand what's happening, but it certainly perhaps makes you stand out. Well, it really makes me go, oh, my God, all I'm doing is these crazy bass runs. Yeah. And, like, they're all just squares. Like, the patterns I play yeah. are just squares. Um, and, you know, the the complicatedness is overcomplicated. It could have been much more simple, um, but still, like, really interesting, just less notes or something. I reckon 90% of what you do is actually great. Sure, there might be the odd note that is a little questionable or mm. a, a run that's placed somewhere which doesn't really need to be there or something like that, but I reckon all in all you pretty much hit the mark. Oh, thanks. I think even though you're saying you've got a loose grasp of the musicality of writing mm. songs is like I don't agree. I think that you are a really sophisticated songwriter back then. Uh, look, I'm more referring to just guitaring and chords, you know, because that's like a really big thing for me now. Like I really love, I love chords. I mm-hmm. love variations on chords, and I love understanding chords. And they, they even after all this time, they still hold a bit of mystery for me, mm. a bit of magic, you know. So yeah. like back then, it was just clumsy, clumsy, clumsy. Yeah. Well, that's cool because like even for me. I don't even know what I'm playing when I'm writing songs. So, I mean, that's not true. I do. But, like, you know, using new tuning. So when you do play, when you do write something, that mystery of it evolving is is still there. Yeah. And it feels magical. Mm. Like, that's Mm. that's what songwriting should feel like. Every song feels like it's the last song. Yeah. (laughs) But luckily for us, we had eight more albums to come. (laughs) Yeah. After this. This was our first album. Yeah. This is wild. Yeah. I was 20 years old. So perhaps we're done. Perhaps we can wrap up this flower episode. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, it's been a long rambling story, as you'll probably find that most of us are. You'll edit this, though. I will edit this a little, but it's all it's all hot stuff. You know, it's all good. How many hours have we been talking about <laughs> About flower? 30. I'm tired. This is The Ending Goes Forever, <laughs> the Screen Feeder podcast. You've been listening to Tim and Kelly talking. This was episode two, talking about flower. Next time we're going to revisit Burn Out Your Name, our 1993 album.
keep listening. As we mention every episode, we are going to put all these podcasts up through all the usual channels once we've done the first real series. Uh, for now, it's available, as you know, through Patreon. So it's patreon.com slash screenfeeder. If you want to join up as a patron of the band, you can do so for as little as five bucks a week. Uh, is it a week or a month? It's a, it's month, a month, isn't it? Yeah, yeah as a little as five bucks a month. A month. We've had a good time talking about flowers. It's been interesting and a little, uh, you know, lots of memories coming back for the first time in ages. Have you, have you enjoyed this one? I have. Like, I've loved kind of listening back to this though, because it's it's just been really great. Yeah, <laughs> I can't really. Yeah, yeah. It's like this nostalgia. It is. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to the next ones as well because as we moved along as a band. I guess you could say our story sort of snowballed a bit and became a bit bigger and a bit more interesting and a bit, you know, we expanded our horizons a little and did other things. Um, okay, so let's call it a wrap. This is a wrap. Tim and Kelly, Screamfeeder, the ending goes forever. Thanks very much for listening.